This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk now with our good friend, Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, how are you? Great. How are you, Mike? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I've, I've been trying to reach you here. Let me see. I've, I've sent you a message on uh, Facebook. I've sent you a DM on Twitter. I've looked for you on Instagram, and uh, I don't I don't see you anywhere. Uh, where have you gone? I deleted all of it. It's all gone. No more social media. New year, new me, no social media. Okay. For someone who is involved with things like data, with things like privacy, instantly when you hear somebody who has a, a big understanding of how all that works has deleted their social media... Uh, fill us in here, Dr. Cook. Why did you leave all of that? Why is it gone? Enough's enough. I mean, really, uh, most of the social media I was using was owned by Mark Zuckerberg, of course, being Facebook and, and Instagram. And I, I've been on these platforms uh, most of, of my adult life, Mike. I think I've been on Facebook since I was in high school. Uh, I remember an ex-girlfriend in the hallways of Saunders Secondary School here in London telling me about it. I remember saying, what the heck is the Facebook? And ever since I found out about it, I mean, it's been the primary way that I've stayed in touch with people that I've met, uh, not just here in Canada and locally, but of course around the globe. It's been a huge part of my life. Instagram has been as well. But, you know, when you, you spend so many years, Mike, you know, you and I have known each other for almost a decade, if you can believe it. We've been talking on the radio here and there for the better part of eight years. And, you know, Facebook comes up quite a bit when it comes to uh, politics surrounding Mark Zuckerberg's decisions, uh, issues with data mining, Cambridge Analytica scandal, the way in which the platform has fundamentally failed to keep certain kinds of violent ideas and oppressive regimes off of their own platforms. At some point, you just have to look at what you're what you're involved in very critically and say, is this something that I really want to be a part of anymore? And and that was the basis of my decision. It was just to, to pack up and walk away and, and try to set an example of, of what it means to, to not give in to these kinds of, of dangerous platforms, frankly. It's pretty interesting to see what these platforms started out as and then some of the directions that they have been taken. Facebook had no more than an idea of how to hook people up at at a university that, that yeah. was that was it that's that's what it was designed to do right yeah uh, actually for for mark zuckerberg it was um a way for him and his friends to uh rate the relative quote unquote hotness of women that they went to school with i mean the platform wasn't designed to uh, just connect people the basis of it was you know, basically a, a frat joke. And so when you take those kinds of things into account, when you take into account as another example, uh, Mark Zuckerberg saying that if thousands of people at his college were stupid enough to give him their personal info, why not just take it? And I know this seems a little crazy it's obviously offensive but we have to remember that the context of it being offensive is in the context of 2021 where we know that 
the big data data industry depends upon collecting personal information to profile us and make a profit off of it. But that wasn't self-evident in the early 2000s, was it? That wasn't a conversation. I mean, Facebook was really what started that conversation in terms of big data analytics. But he was thinking this way before he started making that data profitable. And so you're right. I mean, it did start off as something, but it really has become quite something else. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, if you missed it, has done away with all of his social media. Is this a break, do you think, or is this something that you think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have no interest in going back or, or finding another one? Everybody's learned over the last five <laughs> days a lot more about things like parlor. Yeah, no, I definitely will not be going to Parler, um, seeing how the platform required everyone to upload photos of the front and back of their driver's licenses. And all of those licenses have now subsequently been leaked online. So, no, I will definitely not be going to that. I'm not interested in moving over to other social media platforms. And, Mike, you're correct um, in recognizing that the, one of the major reasons why I would do something like this is obviously because of the politics around Zuckerberg and the politics around data mining and uh, the subsequent failure uh, to respect my privacy as a human being, to respect the privacy of my neighbors, especially people who are not privileged white men like myself. These systems tend not to work very well for people of color, especially if they're women. But this isn't all of it for me, Mike. The, the biggest reason why I walked away from the platform is because I hate the way it makes me feel as a human being. I, over the last decade, to be uh, as candid and as open as I can with you listening right now, I, I've been feeling increasingly isolated. I know that seems like a rather obvious <laughs> remark to make on the heels of the, the pandemic year, but there is something about the way in which that platform um, is designed that makes me feel like I need to compete to stay visible. It's always been really interesting as to me as a media theorist, for example, that when you open up Facebook on your browser, you have the content organized chronologically. So news updates start at the top of your screen, they move down. But if you don't contribute to the news feed, you're never on top of what's going on in the world. If you post something once a week, you're going to be very, very, very low on people's radar. And so the system really, I think, is designed to make you feel like unless you're really engaging all the time and you're showing off everything that is that you have to show off in your day-to-day life, you're just not relevant. Now, this might not be the same experience for everyone, but it's, but it's been a very dark one for me. And um, again, I, I think the, the emotional register and the mental health toll that social media is taking on people, especially because we now know that they are designed to manipulate our emotions uh, has, has really been the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It's so great to hear you bring that up because that is something absolutely legitimate that doesn't get talked about enough. The idea that the competition factor exists, how low you can feel if you see somebody saying day after day, I did this, I did this, I did this. And then you think, yeah, I guess, well, I, I didn't do any of that. And because they're posting day after day, it's being bombarded on your timeline. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And 
you know, that that's that can be tough to deal with. And the person doing it probably wouldn't realize they were doing it, but they're having an impact on other people, aren't they? They certainly are, Mike. And, and you, you've really touched on a key point here. The system is not run by a bus driver. It's, it's all automated. The data collection uh, is, is premised upon a real-time auction. So if you can imagine something like eBay that is only meant for clients of Facebook, where you pay X amount of money to log into a very different platform related to Facebook, and you post up as much money as you would like to pay to bid on advertisement space on a user's newsfeed, you are able to push your advertising, whatever, marketing campaign content to those news feeds. So when you effectively log into Facebook and you see an advertisement pop up, that's somebody bidding in an automated system to sell you an idea about a product that you should purchase. Facebook has been a pioneer at scraping together data from across the internet and from your physical purchasing history. So if you go into Canadian Tire you made a purchase and there's a receipt. And if you've given out your, your email address, that is sold to Facebook through a company called Data Logics. And they use all of the information that they can accrue together to stick to a profile and then show you things that you would like to buy. So on top of the emotional manipulation, the political problems and the data privacy problems, what we've run into recently is this, this really interesting issue where there's a lot of news and there's a lot of advertisements showing up in front of people's faces that they don't, they don't agree with. You know, I think it would be fair to say, Mike, it would be safe to say that 10 years ago, as a Facebook user, the advertisements that I saw and the news that I would see popping up on my newsfeed was more accurate in terms of who I felt like I was, which meant that I felt like Facebook was doing a pretty good job of profiling me. As a surveillance scholar, I hate the idea of profiling. I think it's very, very abusive. However, I have to say that since Donald Trump took office, I see more content that could not be more fundamentally different than who I am. None of it makes sense to me. None of the news items that I see on a day-to-day basis on Facebook these days, none of the advertisements are relevant to me, but they make me angry. And I pride myself in being a highly emotionally regulated professional, Mike. So there has been a lot changing in the last half decade on that that platform. And I I think it's going to be very, very dangerous for society for the next decade moving forward, for sure. So I, again, I just, I cannot be a part of this anymore. And we know that, like you say, this is not run by a human necessarily. It's run by an algorithm as far as what you see and what shows up. So... Facebook, it, as much as they like to say, oh, no, 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 it's not us. <laughs> Are they in charge of, of tweaking the algorithm to to try and rile people up? Do you feel that's a thing that they're consciously doing? Well, with the, the introduction of Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica, yes. I mean, the, the premise of that entire experiment was to see if you could make people feel a certain way about political issues to see whether or not you can learn about their political behavior, to see whether or not they would not only vote in a certain way, but whether you could steer how they would vote in a certain way. So, I mean, that is very much a, a, a balance, an orchestrated performance, a theatrical piece, if you will, where programmers and decision makers and executives and engineers are, are having a, a very dark conversation about how to execute an initiative like this. 
But then there are also times where the platform's automated processes, for example, uh, detecting violence, detecting hatred, detecting racism, detecting bigotry, which Facebook has done a really poor job of, they, they do signal things to employees at Facebook, and then they have to decide to intervene. And I have a quick anecdote, and I know we're running out of time that I want to share. Uh, it's a really great example of the irony and the absurdity of this kind of interplay between the algorithms and the people on Facebook. About six years ago, I received a dump of photos into my Facebook Messenger, and the photos came from a retired U.S. Marine. And this Marine was volunteering as a resistance fighter uh, with the YPG, which is the Kurdish resistance against ISIS. So he left the U.S., flew to Syria on his own, picked up a rifle, and fought with the Kurdish resistance against ISIS, if you can believe that. And what he sent me were photos of dead Kurdish militants. And Mike, it was awful. I had thousands of photos of... I, mean, I, I can't describe it. It's not appropriate, but it was disgusting. It really, really upset me. And I, I wasn't anticipating this. And the thing that bothered me the most about it, Mike, is that even then, six years ago, at the height of the plight of Syrians, the height of the crisis, they were not allowed to talk about Kurdish issues on Facebook. Any Kurds that wanted to talk about the Kurdish play, for example, as another example, I should say, on Facebook, all of that was censored. Kurdish resistance was not allowed to have a page in Facebook. They censored that. But somebody could send me photos of dead Kurdish resistance fighters. I mean, the ironies, they add up and they add up and they add up. And at some point, you have to squint at all of it and say, what are they doing? None of this makes sense politically. There's no social value here. This is all about money. And that's why I just cannot do this anymore. I'm done with social media. Dr. Cook, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for having it with us. My pleasure. It's an interesting start to the new year, but thanks for listening nonetheless. Uh, Happy New Year, everyone, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Happy New Year. That's Dr. Thomas Cook. The government is looking at what to do to try to combat COVID-19 and this most recent surge so that you do not overwhelm your system, so that you do not have what you have in places like California where ICUs are at 200% capacity where they've basically had to either enlarge ICUs or use rooms differently. And you can find them if you want to. You can see videos of healthcare workers who take you on tours. And this becomes really, really real, really, really fast when you start seeing things like that. So what do we do to avoid being in that situation? To try and avoid whatever modeling numbers we get, because... Those modeling numbers will have a worst-case scenario, and we might not appreciate what that worst-case scenario is. If somebody says there will be 6,000 cases a day, there will be 9,000 cases a day if this doesn't happen, what does that mean? You know, I don't know. Is, is, that, is that really bad? What, does that mean the field hospital is definitely in use for COVID patients at Western Fair? We don't really get the trickle-down of what that means. But we're going to hear those modeling numbers. One of the things that has been on the table, and the government met over the weekend 
and sources had been telling Global News that Ontario was considering imposing a curfew similar to what Quebec has, and Quebec's will be in place from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m., and it will last until February the 8th. So that was being discussed. Travis Danraj, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, if you haven't heard, announced this morning, reported this morning, that apparently that's off the table, that we don't have to worry about curfews, but they're still going to be there. They're still there as a means to try and curb the spread of COVID-19. So let's take a moment and talk with someone who has looked at length at curfews and what they have done around the world. Dr. Amesh Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an infectious disease physician. Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for being here. Let's just begin with curfews. How impactful, in your mind, can curfews be? I really think that they have marginal, if any, effectiveness, because you have to remember that the virus doesn't spread based on a time of day. It spreads on social interaction. And when you put a curfew into place, you drive people into homes where they may have private gatherings. You compress the time they can be at venues, for example, shopping. So there's going to be more population density during the times when they're not in the curfew. So so I don't think that these are the, the right ways to really uh, curb the spread. The only thing, the only benefit that you can sometimes see is that when they hear, when people hear there's a curfew, they just might become more careful because they start to take the virus more seriously and get better at their habits, whether they're obeying the curfew or not. Do you think curfews can affect what people think of governments who implement them? Well, I, I do think that it's it seems to be kind of a a half measure or a measure that's not necessarily evidence-based. And I do think that erodes confidence. You know, through this, throughout this pandemic, we've seen governments around the globe take actions that were not evidence-based. And that breeds some, some contempt from the general public because they're sick and tired of, of governments fouling this response up for the last year or so, when there are countries like Taiwan, which have done an exemplary job and not had to rely on any of these types of measures. So I do think it does show that, that tell the population that the government does kind of not necessarily have the best response policies all the time. And and that's why it's so important to enshrine competence in in infectious disease management in public health authorities and to listen to those individuals. And, And I do think that the more these types of measures come out, the harder they become to comply with, the more it adds to pandemic fatigue. Dr. Amash Adalja joining us, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. As we look at curfews, and you mentioned Taiwan. We can look at Taiwan. We can look at Singapore. We can look at New Zealand and Australia who have received some real pats on the back for how they've handled things. Take Taiwan, for instance. What have they done that has been so successful? Pro, be, being very proactive. So you have to remember that this virus was discovered around December 31st, 2019. On that same day, Taiwan jumped into action with starting to think about testing protocols, thinking about how to screen travelers, getting their hospitals ready. And they've been able to avoid any of these lockdown stay-at-home orders because they've been able to test, trace, and isolate because they never allowed cases to spiral out of control. The number of deaths that have occurred in Taiwan in over a year of the pandemic is in the single digits. 
more people die in California, for example, in an hour, I think, than, than have died in, in a year in, in Taiwan. So it has to do with taking the infectious disease threat seriously, having infectious disease preparedness be a core part of national security. Taiwan's vice president is an epidemiologist. In the United States, our vice president is what he is. <laughs> well said. Uh, all right. If we're to look at, at countries that do have great case counts, the United States being one, Canada is one, the UK is certainly one, other parts of Europe. Once you get to a certain point, are you over a threshold and, and you kind of have to deal with what you're dealing with? Or or is there, is there a way to, to get a message through somehow? A curfew, maybe not, but is there a way to get another message through or do something that we're not doing now? You have to understand how people are getting infected. So you have to have some level of contact tracing and case investigation to understand which activities are contributing to spread and which aren't. And then you help those venues or help that, that part of the of people's lives become more safe. So if it's people getting infected in restaurants, you try to figure out why are they getting infected in restaurants? What can we do to make restaurants safer? Or what can we do to, to change the, the, the dynamics there? But if you're just kind of thinking about it, blanket saying a curfew, no matter why you're outside of your house, that's somehow contributing to spread. I think that's a, a false notion because, you know, somebody could be walking their dog at a certain time of the night and that's not contributing to spread. And I don't think it should be treated the same as someone who's having a clandestine uh, party where, where that might be something that's a little bit more likely to lead to spread or a lot more likely to lead to spread. So you have to have some idea of what's happening. And I wonder, you know, in a curfew, what they'll, what that will be translated to is you can't go grocery shopping during these hours, but why, why don't you just uh, come over to my house and we're, have, we're all having dinner uh, here? And that's not something that public health can really enforce that well. I mean, or or they or they can try to. And I don't think it will go over very well if they're showing up in people's houses and counting heads and seeing how many people are there and, and pulling people out. Um, I know that's happened in certain places, I think even in Canada, but it's not something that I think is sustainable. Uh, really, what you have to do is come up with targeted public health. Even if you have a high number of cases, there's still data there that can help inform what to do in other things. So, so for example, at-home testing. We have in the United States now uh, three different at-home tests that are available, pushing out at-home testing so that people can know their status when they brush their teeth. They can test themselves once or twice a week so they know if they're contagious or not. That will do a lot to bring down spread. And then the other thing is that you have we have a solution at hand. We have approved vaccines, approved in the United States, approved in Canada. We have to speed the rollout. Uh, Canada has lagged uh, somewhat, uh, the, the United States even, in, in delivering vaccines. That's the solution to this, um, is to get more vaccine into people's arms, because the solution is there. We just have to execute it. How confident are you that that rollout will speed up in places like Canada and the United States? Well, it's definitely speeding up in the United States. I think we had a rocky couple weeks in the first start of this as, as we had to scale up and people weren't uh, sure what to do with the new vaccine and the logistics of it all. So it is speeding up and there are plans to accelerate it even further in the United States. I think the same thing has, is, is happening in Canada. There was this rollout during the holiday season and, and during Boxing Day, people taking things off in Canada, from my understanding. All of that put things behind. But it, it really has to become a core function of government to get this vaccine into people's arms. It has to be almost like a, a warlike operation to just move it as quickly as we can. And I think that's what uh, that's what we need to see happen all over the world, because that's the end. That, that will mean the end of curfews, the end of, uh, of all of these stay at home orders and, and things having capacity limitations. So the quicker we can get the vaccine into people's arms, the quicker all of this is behind us.
Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for your expertise today. Please keep safe. Thank you. Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an infectious disease physician. So ultimately, it is proactivity. That may be the horse that's left the barn. So after that, it is vaccine rollout. And that's something that should become better. That's what we're being promised by the government. It used to be that we would look at, say, the United States or, let's say, Great Britain as being a place that you could get different snacks or you would learn about music. If you if you knew somebody in the USA or in the UK, you would find out about, say, Blur before anybody even knew Blur was a thing. You would find out about chicken chips. All kinds of things would would be there for the taking if you had some kind of connection. Now those connections have kind of served a different purpose entirely, and that is to find out how COVID-19 can progress if it gets to a certain level. I would like to say a big hello to my brother-in-law, Paul Crush, and my sister-in-law, Leanne Stanford, and my niece, Frances, I think, is there as well. And we also have to say happy plow day as we make our way to the U.K. How is everybody doing? We're good, thanks. Yeah, good. having a really good day. Yeah, And we also uh, have to say, Paul, happy birthday. Thank you very much. I don't know how you get to it's celebrate a birthday these days in the U.K. It's probably pretty quiet, but uh, we, we can it's do it on the radio. We can, all right, can everybody who is listening right now on the count of three just yell happy birthday? We won't sing the song, uh, but yell happy birthday. One, two, three. Okay, Paul, I don't know if you were able to hear that, but there was, there was hopefully a big happy birthday from here, yeah. coming from the West. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank what you is Plow Day? What, what even is that? Plow Day is the official first day of the farming calendar. So really? they didn't start on New Year's Day for some reason. That This is the day their calendar started for some reason. I can't okay. tell you any more than that about it, really. I can tell you. <laughs> oh, go on then. Yeah, so when you have the import come into a country, then you have to um, brush up on these types of things, so I know about it. It's okay. the first Monday after the 6th of January, and they traditionally would go to the church with a plow, like the, um, you know, the old-fashioned the old style plows, and have them blessed with the idea that it would help with their crops in the upcoming year. And then that sort of um, mutated through the years so that... Um, people would arrive at your house with a plow and say, if you don't give me any money, then I'll dig up your front lawn. <laughs> so, I hope that still goes on at some point. I hope Not during a pandemic, but when this is and done. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't happen, but there are parades now. There's a guy that dresses up like a straw bear. You know, imagine the old straw um, haystacks. Sure. And there's a bear, and he runs around and collects money um, for charity. <laughs> and if you don't pay the bear, then they come and dig up your lawn. <laughs> I love this. Pay the bear, yes. or they will dig up your lawn. This is great. Yes. Happy Plow Day. Well, you know what? Yes. In a time of pandemic, we've got to find the little things that can put smiles on our faces. Uh, here, we're dealing with rising case counts, but... 
Paul, let's start with you. We're not dealing with anything like what you are dealing with. Let's talk lockdown first. What can and can you not do in the UK right now? Well, it's it's all a bit vague. I mean, you it's you can still go to work if your if your job needs you to go, uh, and you can travel for that within reason. You can still go out and exercise. But they just say locally, but they haven't really explained what locally means. So everybody seems to have their own take on it. There's been sort of things that you should only be able to exercise for an hour, but other people, they haven't actually said that as a rule. They've just sort of suggested it. So it's all a bit bit unknown. They've sort of said, they've said, they haven't actually called it lockdown as such. They've called it tier five. So we had a four tier system. And they just added another tier on the top and said, don't go out, basically, unless, and they gave a whole bunch of reasons you can go out. So I'm an angler, and I could actually go fishing as long as I stay local. But okay. I couldn't go and play golf. Uh, I think you can still get your hair done. No. Oh, you can't. There's, there's, there's some things like that that you can still do and some you can't. And there's even com- confusion among households. I love this. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, it is at that level. You... You sort of think, can you do that or can't you? And you'd have to look it up because it's been so, you know, there's been this bit of information and this bit of information, and none of it's been really, here's a list, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. So, I mean, really, they're trying to get people to stay at home as much as possible, but they've been a bit vague about the actual rules. We're talking with Paul Crush and Leanne Stanford, and Francis is there at some point, and we're talking about what life is like in the U.K. right now because your case counts are not measured by the thousands anymore but by the tens of thousands per day. Leanne, what is different if we look at other than the vagueness of what you can and can't do, but what is different from what you hear from friends and acquaintances and coworkers, say, from summer until now? Yeah, I have um, a couple friends, one who works in a very high-level specialist lung and heart hospital here in Cambridge, and um, she works in a team that deals with people when respirators won't work anymore, when they've done everything they can and they get you on the respirator. Sometimes even that isn't enough, and she works on the ward that deals with those people, the sickest of the sick. And they're completely overwhelmed. So in the country, 63 million people, there are 100 beds for people that are as sick as these people. And um, they've had 3,000 requests for it. And, um, you know, they can only do 100 in the whole country. And that has completely changed, even since the 1st of December. You know, the 1st of December, the numbers were like 2018 in her hospital, and now it's 3540, and they're trying to figure out how to get it to 50. Um, And my sister-in-law is a nurse in an intensive care ward, which would be similar to the type of thing that you would have in London. And um, she left to have her holidays over the Christmas break, And her intensive care ward had a few COVID patients. And when she came back and went to work last week, uh, she could see it building day on day as more and more beds were full. So 
So now her whole entire ward is COVID, and there's two other wards full of COVID people. They're talking about converting whole entire hospitals to COVID-only treatment. So the rollout of the vaccine is really the you know a uh, a wing and a prayer that we're hoping to um, to get on top of it. What is the reaction, Leanne, to the vaccine rollout? Because we're all wondering about speed of rollouts here in North America. Is it systematically being rolled out? Or are things better? Is the confidence level okay? Where does all of that sit? Um, the confidence level is very high. They've started with a sort of triage system that's highly publicized encouraging everybody to make sure they're registered with their GP, and then you get a letter from the GP that says phone this number and book an appointment. Um, Since they started their immunization program now, today they announced 2.6 million people have been vaccinated. Sorry, I correct that. 2.6 million doses of vaccinations have been um, administered because some of them you need to have two, right? Right. And um, and but it's, you know, all sorts of elderly people that I know are just desperate, waiting to get the letter, waiting to get the text message so that they can sign on. Um, We took uh, my mother-in-law into the hospital, you know, a well-oiled machine in and out, no time flat, easy as can be. And. They've now opened today um, super vaccination centers that initially will run 12 hours a day and ultimately will run 24 hours a day to get as uh, they're looking at about 15 million people to be vaccinated by the middle of February. Hmm. Well, I mean that's that's good. That that's a that's a rollout. That's starting to make some big big numbers. Paul, how about the fatigue that exists from people? Do you do you talk to people who say I've just had it with this and I don't care anymore? Because we saw the numbers and staggering numbers that one in fifty in the UK have had or do have COVID nineteen. Yeah, and they're they're talking about. I think London. They were talking about possibly one in three. People, and that's a city of 20-odd million. About one in three, they reckon, have either had it or have got it now. Uh, so, And that's, that's sort of the, the spread has gone from the southeast of the country up, although initially in the last one, it was worse in the north, uh, but that was for sociological reasons rather than sort of the spread of the disease, whereas this one's coming from the southeast of the country and just been spreading up the country. So the southeast got it worst. We were sort of just on the edge of where it was bad, but it's getting worse here now. Uh, but yes, you get a lot of people. We're not, we don't actually talk to that many people, but see, it, uh, get a lot of friends on Facebook. And even some people that I think of as quite sensible people are just getting quite fed up with it now. Uh, I must admit, I'm fed up, but I'm not planning to do anything silly about it whereas some of these people are going i'm just getting to the point where i'm going to have to just go out and meet people just because i'm going mad sort of thing really uh even yeah. with uh, the you know the the numbers that are coming out you still have people saying i've, I've just 
I've had it. Yeah, and you still get some people going, oh, I think it's all a bit of a hoax. I don't think it's as bad as they say it is. And, you know, it's like, what planet are you on? What, you know, what are you listening to? You're obviously listening to totally different stuff to we are. Uh, but, yeah, uh, some people obviously just, you know, look at headlines somewhere and think that's obviously what, it, you know, and not in necessarily reputable places and just go, well, that's what I've been told. That's what I'll believe. Uh, so it's there is a lot of fatigue about it. I mean, and they're talking, you know, well, the schools went back. Francis, our daughter, went back for one day and then they shut the schools down again because it was ramping up so quick. So she got back for one day, saw her friends and then came away again. And they're talking about earliest they're going to restart that mid mid February. Uh, possibly not even then. We don't know yet, but that's the earliest they're talking about. And, and that's even with the quite... amount of vaccine that would be administered. Do they have a date, yeah. Leanne, as we close out? I mean, here they talk about by September, they're hoping that everybody who wants a vaccine can have had a vaccine. In the UK, do you get anything like a date or a suggestion like that? Um, they've they've given rough, rough dates. There's a seven-tier system. So, you know, the first one is the most elderly people. You have to be over 85 and then all of the um, care workers for, you know, places like nursing homes and um, community nurses that go in and help the most elderly, most vulnerable people. And then, you know, less than 80, less than 75, less than 70, less than 60. And then all of the <laughs> people the that way, yeah. are younger than that but have things like asthma and stuff. Right. So, well. Um, with that, we'll we'll see how you know, that all works out. Uh, before we go, yeah. Francis, can you tell us what it's like learning from home, going to school from home in England? How's that been? Good. Hey. Okay. You like having That's... mommy as your teacher? Yeah. And what about <laughs> the videos? Good. And and what about Zoom classes with your friends? Yeah. Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, it's coming up this Thursday, my Zoom meeting. And how many Listen other that, kids you've... are in your house? None. None. So it's a good way that she gets to meet people because there's no play dates, there's no playing in the park, there's none of that. So it's a there... good way for her to stay in touch. The Childhood Zoom Meeting. Well, Francis, you have fun with your Zoom meeting on Thursday. Paul, Leanne, thanks for bringing us up to date on how things are going in a place where COVID-19 is, is definitely rampant. And please keep yourselves safe. Yeah, we'll do that. Bye, Bye Uncle Mike. <laughs> Bye, Francis. Bye, Paul. Happy birthday. Bye, Leanne. Bye, thank you. Really appreciate it. Sometimes when you have contacts in other countries, you can learn about music. You can trade snacks. Uh, here, we're trading tips and advice and sharing experiences about a global pandemic. Yeah, that's, that's our world right now. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.